0: Good morning, everyone. Great to be worshiping with you today as we celebrate the risen Savior, which we do every week, but especially mindful of it today. Um, I have the privilege of um, sharing the scriptures with you today. But before we jump in, we have one more story for you. Madison, would you come up? This is uh, Maddie Pinto. Uh, Many of you will know her. We've asked her if she would share a little this morning. And here you go. Do you want the stand?
1: No? All right. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. <laughs> yeah.
0: um,
1: so I'm going to be sharing a little bit about how um, this church in particular has impacted my life, the church in general, but also how the church has impacted the lives of my family as well. So um, I wrote a story for you guys. Um, So next month, I'm coming up on my five-year anniversary with Jesus, and nearly all of those years have been spent here at Church on Mill. In fact, my first time visiting this church was on Easter Sunday, exactly four years ago. Clearly, God had long-term plans for me to stay put and become planted in this church family. I became a Christian across the street at ASU as a lost and lonely freshman. I was lacking identity and starving for community when members of an on-campus church got a hold of me. They shared the gospel with me, and though it struck a chord with my need, I did not accept Christ right away. I was hesitant to give my life to something that I did not fully understand. However, even though I lacked a relationship with Christ, these Christians brought me into their community and made it their priority to love and serve me. They made every effort to invite me to church events, to study parties, to movie nights, to go out to eat, to Sunday morning worship, to Bible studies, or just to hang out with them on campus. After a semester of being a part of a Christian community as a non-believer, I began to see that there was something decidedly different about how God's people live life together. I couldn't figure out exactly what that difference was, but I wanted to be a part of it. It was this witness of the church that helped me take that leap of faith and give my life to Christ at the end of my freshman year of college. Shortly after becoming a believer, God began leading me to seek out a new church home. My search ended quickly because Church on Mill was right across the street within walking distance of my dorm. I visited for the first time on Easter Sunday four years ago and never left. I became a member about a year later, and since then, God has used this church family to love me back to health. I had some incredible, I've had some incredible women invest in me personally through discipleship, and I've recently been able to do the same with some of my own precious sisters. I'm able to be messy here, and my brothers and sisters are messy with me too. I'm very much myself with these crazy, Jesus-loving people who I have the privilege to call my family. I have committed myself to this body because God has called me to share my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with his people here. Church on Mill is the laboratory that God has placed me in to transform me into the daughter that he designed me to be. Throughout this process, however, I still had my biological family back home who did not know the Lord. At first, my parents thought that my love for Jesus was a phase and that my church membership meant that I committed myself to a cult. So they did not understand, as my parents, they still wanted to love and support me in all of my endeavors. So they cheerfully came to church with me whenever they came to visit me in Arizona. And when they could not come to Arizona, I would bring my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, back home with me to meet them in California. I did whatever I could to expose my parents to the church because that kind of experience was instrumental in my own salvation. I wanted them to see as I had seen how the love shown in God's church was set apart from that of the world. Throughout this process, I'd like to say that I never gave up on them, but to be completely honest, my hope that my parents would come to faith waned over the years. Though I shared the gospel with them often, their rejection also led me to give up on them in my heart often. I continued to include them in my church family, but I questioned whether or not my efforts were helping them to see the beauty of the church that I had too seen as a non-believer. I know now looking back, however, that God was planting seeds in them, though I could not see it at the time. I still can't believe it when I say this, but last year, both my mom and my dad each gave their lives to Christ. And (laughs) and this past November, I had the privilege of baptizing them in their own brand new church in Southern California. So God is really gracious and good. If you get nothing else from my story, hear this. The way God's people gather together matters. It mattered for my salvation, and it mattered for my parents' salvation. While our individual testimonies are invaluable to our witness to the world, the testimony of the church speaks volumes about God's character to those who are still strangers and aliens to his kingdom. In the Gospels, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. Um, However, the second right after this is to love your neighbor as yourself. Next to our love for God, our love for his people is supreme. Therefore, the way we do church, the way we gather together, and the way we practice the one another's of scripture are incredibly important to God. I have learned that the word speaks loudly to what the church should look like, and I'm convinced that is something that we cannot afford to get wrong. The world is watching us, and our responsibility as the church is to demonstrate the beauty of the gospel through the way that we gather together. I believe that this is a part of our identity at Church on Mill, and I pray that God continues to use us collectively as a body to be a powerful witness to the world, as it was for me and for my parents. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madison. You did not leave anything for me to say, so everybody ready to go? That was wonderful. Thank you for sharing with us. Would you turn to Ephesians 2 with me? And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting around you or in one of the uh, chairs, the racks underneath the chairs. I'd like to show you from the scriptures what you've heard people say today. We've heard stories, a variety of stories, demonstrating God at work. And we can see from the scriptures what Exactly is going on as we've heard their stories today. You've heard real stories of God's work in people's lives. And I'd like to take just a few minutes to show you how the scripture says church is a people being transformed by the resurrected Christ. So let me warn you, I'm going to read kind of a long section. Hopefully you got enough sleep last night and it's got some weird things in it, but I'll read it and then we'll try to see if we can explain it together. Ephesians 2, will start in verse 11. It'll be on the screens behind me. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made. You lived in the world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Christ himself has brought us peace. He united Jew and Gentile into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jew and and Gentile by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought the good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. God spoke through a man named Paul to write to a group of people in a town called Ephesus. One of the main things Paul is saying in this long passage is simply this, that church is a collection of people who have experienced dramatic transformation. You heard it in Maddie's story, you heard it in Sarah's story, and you heard it in Chuck's story. And all that we heard was simply this passage in the everyday language of real people like you and me. Now, we'll come back to that idea in just a minute. Christopher Hitchens, who is one of the most popular atheists of our day, wrote a book called God is Not Great. He died a few years ago, and he was an incredibly engaging writer. Maybe some of you have read him. Very well-written books. He had a pretty interesting history with religion, including joining a Greek church simply because he wanted to please his in-laws. That's a long step to take to please the in-laws, isn't it? In God is not great, he argues that religion is the cause of the world's problems. He views religion as, quote, man-made wish thinking, whose entire record is one towards war, hate, and strife. Hitchens was asked if he was traveling in a new city and a group of men were coming down the street towards him in the evening. Would he feel safe or less safe if he was to learn they were coming from a prayer meeting, some kind of religious gathering? Here's his response, and it will be on the screens. Just to stay within the letter B, I've actually had that experience in Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Belgrade, Bethlehem, and Baghdad. In each case, I would feel immediately threatened if I thought the group coming towards me in the dusk was coming from a religious observance. His position is that all over the world, regardless of the religion, religion poisons everything. He says that religion is the problem in the world. Friends, I wonder if some of you feel the same way. Is that your perspective? Have you found a local AA meeting to be more kind and supportive than the church you were forced to attend as a child? Have you made better friends in your yoga class than you ever did in your Sunday school class? Are there religious speakers you've heard whose sermons and books breed ignorance and hate, not love for God and love for people? If we're honest, there is a measure of truth in Hitchin's statement, isn't it? Religion has been a culprit of evil in the world, and Christianity is not immune to that. But in the words of D.A. Carson, it's not as if religion poisons everything, While everything else is good. For example, the last century saw tremendous bloodshed. Godless movements drove the vast majority of that violence. Nazism and Stalinism, for example, were the chief proponents of vast, great evil and killing. They were not religious movements, but anti-religious movements. Just looking at that, we would say that there is a problem in the world. Correct? The world's not the way it was supposed to be. But religion isn't the problem. There's something pulling us towards war and hatred and strife, but that problem isn't religion. That problem's the human heart. And what Paul sought to tell us in Ephesians 2, we could break down maybe into three categories or buckets. One is that there is a problem in humanity. Two is that God has a solution. And that three, there is a way forward. So I'd like to take just a few moments to talk you through those few things. Humanity's problem, God's solution, and our way forward. Let's start with the first, humanity's problem. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that our problem is that we are by nature selfish, sinful people. That our tendency is towards division and conflict and bitterness, not away from it. That people left to our own devices... Fight and quarrel and have strife. We don't get along. Ephesians 2 gives us one of the greatest demonstrations of that selfishness. And this singular example speaks in such a way as it sheds light on the whole of humanity. Look at verse 11 again. It says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, but not their hearts. Now, I have a seven-year-old son, and if he were out in the playground and got angry with someone and yelled, you're an uncircumcised heathen, it probably wouldn't mean much to those seven-year-olds, right? But the closest cultural equivalent we have to that strong of a statement would be for a white police officer in the city of Ferguson to yell at an African-American using the N-word. That's the, the depth of hatred present in the statement. Let me see if I can explain that briefly. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were given the law. And with God's law, they were told to live beautifully, to demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like to live life with God. They were to be a light if you will, to the world. An image of what it looks like to have the joy of knowing the creator God and being in good relationship with other people. But if you know the story, what ended up happening is they turned, many of them, God's law into a reason for pride. They didn't worship God, but rather they worshiped themselves. They promoted themselves and belittled others. And so... The gift of God ended up becoming a tool for hatred. The Old Testament, which is roughly the first two thirds of your Bible, with all its instructions, was intended to be a guideline for living a wholly attractive life. It was supposed to be a blessing first to those people and then to the whole world. But just like we would have, many of them turned it into an object of control and division Instead of inviting people towards God, they arrogantly claimed to be the only ones who could know God. Verse 11 of this chapter calls that the wall of hostility separating Jew and Gentile. They hated each other. And if you travel to Jerusalem today, you'll see it. The hatred is still there. It has not changed. This dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is but one example of the dividing wall between people today. Our divisions reveal the sinfulness of our hearts. Some of our uh, interns here and I made a list this week of some divisions that we see in Tempe. Man versus woman. Church versus state. Young versus old. Traditional versus modern. Educated versus uneducated. Democrat versus Republican. Rich versus poor. Black versus white. And of course, Sun Devils versus Wildcats. Almost everywhere we look, humanity is divided. Why? Why is it that we're bent towards fighting, not towards peace? That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. Tim Keller put it this way. When God gives us good gifts and talents and strengths, there's something in the human heart that takes those gifts... Elevates them to an absolute value and then looks down on everybody else who doesn't have them. It causes us to be despised and divisive. The good gift becomes a basis for hostility. I wonder, have you experienced that in your own life? Have good things that God's given you turned into objects that causes you to look down on other people? Even in a town as progressive as Tempe, there is all kinds of hostility and division. Every one of us is bent towards thinking we're right, and therefore, everybody else is wrong. Just think about your biological family. Are there fights between people so deep that family gatherings are painful? Are there people in your extended family who hate each other so much they don't even talk? Division is painful. Apart from God, we are people alienated from God and hostile towards each other. Why? Ephesians says it's because we're separated from God. That's the problem of humanity. That's the problem in all of our hearts. But that's not all Paul says. He has better news than that. He gives us a solution. In fact, God's solution. God's solution to this universal problem is to bring peace by creating a new humanity, a people with an entirely different identity in Christ. Look at verse 16. It articulates this for us, and you heard it in Maddie's story in particular. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you, Gentiles who are far away, and peace to the Jews who were near. Christians believe that the death of Jesus Christ tore down the wall of hostility, first between Jew and Gentile, but then between all of us and all the dividing walls that remain. God's people are a new humanity transformed by God's grace. And gathered together to worship him and care for one another and bless the world. In a word, that's church. That's why you've heard these stories today. True stories. Gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-listening churches are stunning evidence that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. The church is the visible demonstration that the resurrection is true. Jesus, because he's alive, created the church. And the church exists not in division, but in peace and harmony. You see, the death of Jesus is the great equalizer. It reveals to all of us that there is a sense of superiority in our hearts. It shows us that apart from him, we selfishly divide. And yet it invites us all equally to come to Jesus and be forgiven and be equals. Maybe you are aware that you've been selfish and divisive. Maybe you're aware that apart from God's work, you naturally divide. Well, friend, the death of Christ reveals that we all share that. We've all rebelled against God. We've turned his good gifts into ultimate things, which causes us equally to reject other people. Christ's death not only reveals this, though, it offers the way to healing. God's solution to our sinful, dividing hearts, the Scriptures tell us, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're here today. Jesus took our place by embracing the punishment for our sin. And His resurrection shows that it worked. He is our hope. So quickly, we have considered humanity's problem and God's solution. Now, our way forward. When people recognize their sinfulness, when we come to see that universally, not in the same exact ways, but equally, we are arrogant people who've rebelled against God and we've created division in the world. Then we're one step away from being embraced and forgiven and welcomed by God into a new people. We're one step away from the tremendous transformation the people in Ephesus experienced. What remains is to believe that Easter is true, that it's not just a day to gather and sing and then go and eat. Instead, it is a day to be embraced by God and invited into a whole new way of life that lasts not just one day a year, but every day. It's to believe that Jesus died and rose again. See, our way forward is to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. In different ways, Maddie and Chuck and Sarah, and in a few minutes you'll hear another story, all articulated how Jesus has been changing them. When you put faith in Jesus and become a Christian, the Scriptures tell us that you get not only Jesus, you get His people too. God adopts you as His son or daughter and gives you a huge extended family to help you grow and to show the resurrection is true. To show that Jesus really did die and rise again. That's what church is. So we would encourage you today to look around you. Sitting near you is evidence that Easter. is true. People who were self-focused have been radically transformed into people of love and hope. Amen. Our relationships of love, support, unity, truth speaking, generosity, all of these things display the resurrected Jesus. And one of the tremendous blessings we have in particular at Church on Mill is the reality is easily seen because we are not all the same. There are people here literally from all over the world, all different classes, all different educational backgrounds, all different amounts of money. We're collected together not because we're the same and it's easy to get along, but because Easter is true. Because the dividing walls of hostility are being broken down through the power of Jesus. So, what is church? Church is God's people being transformed by God's grace gathered together to be a light to the world, to be a joyful proclamation that Easter is true. Jesus is changing us. And he can change you too. When we come to see in the scriptures that the cross of Jesus can be the middle, the very center of our lives, when we acknowledge our sin and ask God for his mercy, then God's peace becomes our peace. We gain peace with Him and therefore peace with each other. And as that happens, then we find that selfishness begins to fade. And it doesn't matter who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. Skin color becomes inconsequential, as does money or in degrees. Or what kind of struggles we currently have. You see, Easter is true. Jesus' death really has brought peace. His death gives that kind of power. What is the church? The church is a new humanity of love. A people being transformed by God. Church with all of its flaws, and we certainly have them, is evidence that Easter is true. I hope you'll trust Him today and join in this adventure with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this isn't just another day. Thank you that what's true we've considered today. Thank you that what we've sung about, what we've heard people articulate in personal stories, what we've seen in your scriptures, what we've heard praying in our prayers, what we can see literally as we look at each other is that Easter is true. Jesus is alive. There is resurrection power available to us. And I would pray that the people who came today that are a regular part of Church on Mill, that live every day in the light of Christ, that are Christians, would be called to an even even deeper level of peace with you and with each other. And that we would work hard at pursuing people who are different than us, because Christ pursued us. I would pray for others here who maybe don't frequent a gathering of people being transformed by God. Church isn't a normal part of their lives, but at some point in their past, they trusted Christ. God, would you invite them to come back to be a regular part of God's work transforming people? I don't care so much if that's here, but just that it's somewhere where there's a collection of people, your church, who can encourage them and help them grow, and they could do the same. And God, lastly, I would pray for people who came today who have never experienced the transforming work of Christ. God, may you break down the dividing walls. May you answer their questions. May you invite them, even where they're sitting today, to trust you, to turn from sin and turn to you. And God, we praise you for Jesus, who is alive, who is powerful, and in whose death there is forgiveness and whose life there is grace and transforming power. And as we hear this again in just a moment in another story, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
2: Amen. Ushers, let's come forward and take up the offering. And as they are doing that, the, uh, we're going to see another celebration with a, a baptism. And Darla Dillahay has just recently decided to follow Christ and wants to follow him in obedience with baptism. Pat Nickel, you guys come on into the waters. And then as they share, listen, and then ushers go ahead and come forward and take up the offering, please.
3: Before the Lord became my Savior two years ago, I did everything in my own strength, I had no self-esteem. I was always anxious and worried about something. I always tell that I was always had loneliness, so I searched for love in the wrong places. I was dependent on alcohol, for that just helped none the pain. I had no purpose and no self. Um, I was just self-absorbed and negative. The Lord has always pursued me, and I always had sense there was hope. I had hit rock bottom, and I had nowhere to turn. when I heard the Lord gently tell me, follow me, and everything will turn around. Sorry, I lost my place. I chose to believe in him that day with every detail of my life and he immediately gave me self-worth and confidence. I became happy and filled with joy. He gave me peace in all my circumstances, and I have now been sober for two years. I am more positive now, and I truly have purpose in Christ. I am so grateful for the Lord and that He chose me. Um, I know now that the Lord is my resource and my strength.
2: this is such a, a privilege to be able to baptize you because you have trusted Jesus as uh, your Savior but also as the Lord and Ruler in your life, uh, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of. The... Hold, your hands, and... no. Hold your, hands. Put your hands together. Relax. We didn't rehearse this. knees. <laughs> baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, just the example that Darla is in my life, uh, the way that she perseveres through just struggles and uh, just shows me how I can trust in you through those same circumstances as humorously. You've been putting the same circumstances in my life that uh, and struggles that she goes through. Uh, I just praise you for her, for this body for the the way that you knit us together to be a support and encouragement to each other, to grow together. Uh, I just pray that you bless her life, uh, even out the bumps that she's having um, through your power and help her to continue to, to trust you wholly in every step. Just praise you and pray in Jesus' name.